Good morning, everyone. Can you hear me? Wonderful. Um, so we acknowledge the Ghana people are the traditional custodians of the Adelaide Plains and pay respects to elders past, present and future. We recognise and respect their cultural heritage, beliefs and relationship with the land. We acknowledge that they are of continuing importance to the Ghana people living today. So I've just got a bit of housekeeping for everyone. Uh, we ask you to support our authors and Adelaide Writers Week by purchasing books in the book tent. Uh, usually there's a book signing, but obviously I won't be signing Pam's book for you today, but please buy her gorgeous book. Um, now, thank you for coming to Adelaide Writers Week in such excellent numbers. Whilst it's great to see you all here, we do need to ensure everyone is physically distanced. This is crucial as it is a key condition of our COVID management plan that was approved by SA Health. So before we commence, especially for those of you who are standing, move yourselves apart and ensure you maintain social distance. Thank you and hopefully we can get started. So everyone comfortable? Hi, my name is Mirandi Rewo, and today I'll be talking with C. Pam Zhong, the author of How Much of These Hills is Gold. Pam is an American writer who was born in China and moved to America with her family when she was four. Her book, How Much of These Hills is Gold, was long listed for the Booker Prize and recently won the Asia Pacific American Literature Prize. Welcome, Pam. Hello. I don't know if you can hear me. Yes, we can hear you clearly. <laughs> How are you? Um, I'm doing well, though. I admit that now that I see the stage over there, I'm jealous that I can't be sitting oh. in the Australian sunshine as well. I know. It's a beautiful day here in Adelaide. First of all, I was going to ask you how you are. So things have been so distracting and distressing in this last year. Have you been like Taylor Swift and written up a storm? Or have you been like me and found new ways to procrastinate? Oh, I mean, I think I would have to go with the procrastination route all the way. I think that, you know, prior to the pandemic, I'd already been doing a lot of thinking about how writing and the creation of art don't really adhere very well to like the capitalist 40 hour work week. And that's a stance that I've just leaned into during this time. Like, I think a lot of us are preoccupied with other things, with grief, with activism. And I think this, all those things are okay and we'll come back into our writing lives eventually. That's great. Um, so I'm just going to give a quick rundown of your book. So how much of these hills is gold is set in the Wild West period of um, American history. It's a beautiful, moving story about two siblings recently orphaned. Lucy is the oldest sister, and most of the book is from her point of, point of view, and Sam is her youngest sibling. They're trying to find home and everything the word home might denote. In the first section, they leave the house they've been recently living in and embark on an arduous journey to find somewhere to inter their father's bones. There's so much to unpack in this beautiful book, themes to do with loyalty, family, belonging, racism, and adventure. So Pam, would you like to do a little reading for us? Yes, I would love to do a little reading. That was such Thank a great you. introduction of the book that I don't think I need to give any more context. I'm gonna just read <laughs> a little bit from near the beginning. Thank you. What could almost make a girl laugh is how Ba came to these hills to be a prospector. 
Like thousands of others, he thought the yellow grass of this land, its coin bright gleam in the sun, promised even brighter rewards. But none of those who came to dig the West reckoned on the land's parched thirst, on how it drank their sweat and strength. None of them reckoned on its stinginess. Most came too late. The riches had been dug up, dried out. The streams bore no gold. The soil bore no crops. Instead, they found a far duller prize locked within the hills, coal. A man couldn't grow rich on coal or use it to feed his eyes and imagination, though it could feed his family in a way, weaveled meal and scraps of meat until his wife, wearied out by dreaming, died delivering a son. Then the cost of her feed could be diverted into a man's drink. Months of hope and savings amounting to this. A bottle of whiskey, two graves dug where they wouldn't be found. What could almost make a girl laugh is that Bob brought them here to strike it rich, and now they'd kill for two silver dollars. And I'll end right there. Lovely. Thank you, Pam. Um, Pam, I found it um, especially engaging and interesting how your book unfurls, how you've structured the narrative, revealing story and character as it goes along, um, how not everything is necessarily as it seems, or, or you point out there are reasons some of the characters might act the way they do. Um, was this something you wanted to explore originally when writing the novel? I think that my answer to most of these questions is going to be yes and no. I'm sure you know yes, as a writer course, yourself, there's, <laughs> right? There's a lot that um, right comes out subconsciously, and I think for me, when I first began this book, I was just hit. I literally woke up one day with these images in my head, like this dry heat, these hills, these two children on the run. So I even for me creatively, I started in the middle of a scene, and that's really where I progressed. Um, but, you know, when I look back on the book now, it I am, I am, and the book is very interested in the idea of family secrets, of traumas that may be buried between generations, particularly, I think, for immigrant parents who write, move to a completely different land, leave a lot physically behind as well. Um, and I was really interested in exploring how this trauma ripples through mm -hmm. a family, even when actually maybe especially if it isn't addressed outright. Mm. Um, and I wondered if you could tell us a bit about a couple of the characters. Um, so Bar is a wonderful character. He has such strength in that he can be flexible and just gets on with things. Um, but of course he has his weaknesses too. Um, I wondered if you could tell us a bit more about him. Yeah, um, the character of Ba is a really interesting one. In some ways, the grief, the book is really about grief and about the grief of these two children when they wake up one day and discover that their father, who is their only remaining parent at the opening of the book, has died in the night. And, you know, Ba, as we are first introduced to him in this context, is a man who has really, I don't know, sort of given way to, to bitterness um, and to the sort of failure of, of the American dream to him and his family. You know, he came he came looking for gold, he came looking for a fortune. And I was really interested in how these kinds of national narratives and mythologies of like, you know, constant upward betterment of frankly naked capitalism um, can, can hurt a person when they see a gap between what they're told, right? This pull you mm, up by the mm. 
pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Everyone has an opportunity to succeed mm. national mythology. And then the reality of a lived experience where um, Ba is embittered by the very naked racism he experiences um, by the laws of the time that prohibit him from owning land, from actually be, being able to grasp the wealth, even when it is literally in his hands. Yeah. Um, and, and Sam. So in my book, I have a girl named Ying who dresses as a boy, but perhaps mm -hmm. only in as far as she needs to be dressed as a boy for her own personal safety here on the, in the gold rush. Um, so she can, you know, join her brother here. Can you tell us more about your character, Sam? Yeah, so um, Sam is one of my favourite characters in yes. the book, if I'm allowed to have favourites. Yeah, no, uh, they're very. <laughs> Thank you for saying so. Um, it was, Sam provided a really interesting conundrum to me as a writer, because I, I believe that if Sam were, you know, alive today, using the language that we have today, they would probably identify as either transgender, being born a girl, and then identifying um, as a boy, or non-binary. But what was really an interesting and like fascinating craft challenge for me in writing this book is that I wanted to make the world, you know, authentic and whole unto itself, which meant that unfortunately it isn't the same views that I believe in in my personal life um, that we talk about in 2020 can't exist in this world. Nice. Um, so Sam right away is this conundrum that sort of helped shape even the sound of the book because for the first, I don't know how many it is, maybe like 15 or so pages, I created the style that largely avoids using gendered pronouns. Sure, um, yep. yeah. I noticed because that, that I, very clever. Yeah, because I wanted Sam to have a chance to present themselves as they are, which is dressing as a boy, acting in what in the world of the book are considered, you know, more masculine mm. ways. Um, and for the reader to experience that sudden sort of like that first flip, that sort of, oh, I need to reevaluate where I am in question question things. Um, and so Sam continuously throughout the book just ended up being this character who sort of changed the course of events. Um, it's this kind of maverick who goes along and lives the lives by the rules that Sam wants to live by. Um, so it, that was a really delightful character. And I think that because Sam um, is also a very canny character and very firm in what they want, they're one of the characters that is most able to sort of see through the gendered, very gendered roles of this society mm. um, and sort of twist, twist perceptions to their own gains as well. Yes, yes. I found my character Ying too, you can look at a sort of, I guess, the limits to her life were she to be living mm. in, a, in a, you know, female, in a female way. Um, so I've read that you moved 13 times when you were growing up. And mm -hmm. when I was reading sections of your book, it occurred to me that these experiences might have inspired some of your writing, especially uh, that idea of what makes a home a home, a question the siblings ask each other. Uh, would that be right? Yeah, I think that um, I, I still like struggle sometimes to find that answer in my own life, but def definitely the fact that my family moves so much has, that question has haunted me my whole life. Um, the question of like, what does it really mean to belong to a place? And, you know, especially being Asian American, mm. 
you are constantly hit by these questions of where are you from? No, where are you really from? And it's not enough to say like, I've lived here for five years or even for other people that I've been born here. There's yeah. always this question of where are you really from? And so a lot of the book is really concerned with this idea of like, how do you define your identity, mm. um, both for yourself and then within a culture that wants to define it for you? And is there, mm. is there a piece that can be brokered between those two, two forces. Yeah, especially when the dominant culture is really, you know, white European. It's yeah, to, exactly. like you said, it's hard to negotiate. Um, so I was interested in this. Our books came out exactly the same time last year, uh, just at the beginning of the pandemic. And I remember, so mine's. So my books about the Gold Rush, the Chinese and the Gold Rush, and about, I guess, racism against the Chinese. And I remember thinking it was terrible timing when it came out that nobody would want to read the book because it was about the Chinese, but also, um, you know, because the pandemic had come out of China and there were all the racist attacks. And, um, and I remember saying to a friend, oh, God, nobody's going to buy it. And they said, well, maybe it's good timing, good timing for a book like this. Um, and I, and I think you've you've talked about it as well. The sort of ra that racism is always laying just below the veneer of America and how it's erupting again. And I saw just even this morning, I think in San Francisco, a, a, a man from Thailand was an old man was was killed, mm -hmm. um, and they think it was probably most probably a racist attack. Um, did you did you have any misgivings like that when your book came out? Yeah, it's it's this combination of, oh, I guess it's relevant again. And then, oh, no, how horrible that's relevant again. You know, yes, I, it's yes. really interesting. Yeah, yeah, a combination of the two. So I started writing this book, you know, in 2015, before, um, you know, Trump was elected to office in the United States, when things seemed to be on, you know, on an upswing where I feel like you could still hear murmurings that we were entering this post mythological post-racist society mm. that people are always talking about. Um, and so when I finished this book, I actually had this fear that what I was writing about, this sort of nakedness of violence against um, Asian immigrants in my novel was too, you know, too histrionic. Like people would be like, calm down, it's oh, 2020, yes. Yes. right? Yeah, yes. I mean, I wonder some if some of, the of those is that. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and I think that again, it's just another reminder that history does tend to repeat itself when unaddressed. And, you know, earlier I was talking about this sort of idea that the book has that um, trauma in a family, when not faced head on, when not to dealt with, will sort of come back and re-traumatize the mm. future generations. I think mm. that's also true of, of history, of American history. It's, you know, like the history of the Wild West. Um, and I think of many parts of Australia too, right, is a history of so much bloodshed of so much being stolen mm. and it i don't see a future where we can just move past that without yeah. acknowledging it without mm. grappling with how it still continues to you know affect um systems of power mm. correct um so yeah i have this little you probably covered this but i did have a little reading from your book and Ooh, you, you've written, <laughs> what moves in the heads of these people each time they look at us and size us up? What makes them decide on one day to call us chink and the next day to let us pass and some days to offer charity? I don't rightly know, Lucy girl. Never figured it, figured it out. 
And I think that's just really interesting about that sort of, you know, the unstable ground of, you know, not knowing, I guess, how you're going to be accepted or treated. Is that what you were um, aiming for with that, with that paragraph? Oh. Oh, I'm sorry. We I think can there's a little you. bit of a connection issue. Oh, okay. Oh, can you hear me now, Pam? Oh, now we can't hear Pam. Hello, Pam. Um, oh, all right, can, can you, you hear me? I can hear you. Can you hear me? No? Okay, I think we're back. We're back? I think we're back. We're Could back. you, I'm so sorry. I That's think I heard right. what you read. Do you mind okay, no, me asking the just, question? It's just that little tiny, it's a little tiny part. I was just wanted to ask you about the, you know how, the, un, the instability sometimes of, of not knowing how people will react. What moves in the heads of these people each time they look at us and size us up? What makes them decide on one day to call us chink and the next day to let us pass and some days to offer charity? I don't rightly know, Lucy girl, never figured it out. I think that's a, it's a great paragraph mm. showing what it is like, the instability of, you know, being a different colour. Is that what you, mm. were, you were getting at there? Yeah, and I think that it, it is also a reflection on something I've been thinking a lot about this year um, in regards to activism is the, the burden of, of education that people in marginalized positions often find themselves. In this particular case, Ba is, you know, he's just thinking, so it's the burden of sort of like, he is forced to empathize with the yeah. people who want to do him harm yeah. and sort of try to imagine their thought processes, try to like go through the steps yeah. of logic to think about what the action they might take and therefore sort of like how he might respond to keep himself safe. And, um, you know, I think Toni Morrison has talked a lot about this, about what would it be like, and I, I wonder this all the time, what would it be like for people who are in marginalized populations to not have to constantly be the ones to empathize with those in power? Like how much of our headspace would we have back? How much of our creativity mm. would we have back if that weren't the case? That's true. And not even just empathize, but just second guess them. Mm. Or, mm -hmm. or um, I guess, you know, change up your own behaviour to, to um, yeah, to sort of appease or, or just go under the radar. Um, yeah. Also, just recently, when that film um, of Little Women came out, I was mm. thinking of how much I loved, loved that book and books like it growing up. But it was probably the first time I realised that those books and characters I loved and admired when I was young were full of white women. So actually, and mm. you know, when you're reading these books that you love, you come to really aspire to be them. And then I realised, well, I was never, I was never going to be able to be these characters, especially, mm -hmm. you know, back then, I think Amy Tan, I was probably late teens by the time Amy Tan came out. And that kind of was like mm -hmm. um, the first time I could see that that there was an interest maybe in, in reading um, backgrounds that were like mine. Um, and I read that you, you said, eventually I realised that people in these books that I loved were always white. I wanted to write a great American epic in which I saw myself reflected. Do you want to tell us a bit more about that and what, what you were reading and what inspired you to write? 
this. I feel like we could talk for ages about like the the little women yes. sort of effect. In, <laughs> yes. in my case, yes. <laughs> the touchstone was um, Laura Ingalls Wilder's Little House on the Prairie series, right? And I remember right. there was literally, I had this moment of reckoning when, I don't know how old I was, maybe 10 years old, where, you know, I used to sometimes before bed, I used to fantasize about what if I right uh, traveled through time and ended up on the prairie um, with Laura and we could sort of hang out together and uh, during one of these fantasies I was like wait but all they would really do is like stare at me yeah. and feel feel like ask me where I was from um, that would be it and so you know the thing is like I still really I actually reread one of the little house books very recently. I don't uh -huh. know how recently you reread Little Women. I but did. It's I went still... back and reread it. Yes. Yeah. And did you still like it? Because I still like Little House. Look, I the still powers love it. of it still work. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I do. I still love it. Love it. Yes. Yeah. And Especially the so Good Wives, things... the next one. Still love it. Good. That's for the same reasons. <laughs> yeah. But you're right. Um, and I think. So... Oh, I'm so sorry. I was just no, going no. to say so, like, it's, it's hard because I think that as an adult, you know, we can, the canon should be diverse and should be able to hold all this like i'm not saying like no we should take little house on the prairie out no. of, of schools because no absolutely not it's wonderful it has these beautiful passages it's it's an incredible book but also i want there to be options right there should be options that yes. um make it so that you know little girls who are the age that we were when we yes. encounter those books are like well there's little women there's little house and also there are these other stories that exactly. reflect you know the diversity of those times because that's i think that's what's dangerous right the danger of having one one story about the west where it's always you know a man in cowboy boots swaggering across yes. the landscape yes. um because that wasn't even true well that's that's interesting that you say that like in your book you do you do explore a little what it was like for Lucy, you know, um, mm -hmm. with the, the white kids in the classroom. And something, and you're right, because it's not represented in the books, and I'm not talking like Bridgerton, where, where we've introduced, you know, all these, these characters that wouldn't have been part of the society, but something I found out when I um, was researching my book, that there were, there were actually many more Chinese people in that area than white people at the mm -hmm. time. But that's mm -hmm. just not represented in fiction or anything unless you go there and see the museums. We still think of it mm -hmm. as very white, uh, you know, pioneering kind of country. Yeah. So, yeah. And, yeah. and I think it, again, it bleeds into like the real harm and the power, which can be, power can be for good or can be for ill of a national mythology, right? When you see the sort of toxic um, ideology that has come out recently where it's all about like, you know, uh, in the case of America, like America for Americans, get them out of our country, like leave it for yes. us. It's like, well, actually, you know, their immigrants have been here for hundreds of years and the white settlers themselves were, oh, were immigrants. So, you know, what, you know what I mean? Yes, I do yeah. know what you mean. That's, that's <laughs> one of my points too, is that they were only one or two generations, you know, here before the Chinese anyway, they were very new and, um, mm. but was sort of the gatekeepers. Yeah, it's very interesting. And I think, like you were saying, it's re, it's rewriting that period, bringing it something closer to the truth, like actually, mm -hmm. you know, compared to what's out yeah. there. Um, yeah. So, and I noticed, so you've wrested this Western cowboy kind of novel out of a white male writer's hands and ridden it from this fresh, previously elided point of view, which is what we're just talking about. Um, 
I think we can. I think we can skip that because we, you've just <laughs> said your motivations. So we can um, move on to the tiger. I was going to wear a tiger dress today because, <laughs> <laughs> but I decided I might be showing too much leg to everyone here. Um, <laughs> so. You, there's a tiger in your novel. I've heard you talk about it in relation to having immigrant parents, about how Chinese culture and heritage comes to you in fragmented, fragmented ways, which I can really relate to. Um, can you mm. tell us about this tiger in your novel and what it might re represent for you and the novel? Yeah. I mean, I feel like one of the things that maybe I don't talk about enough with regards to this book is the fact that it was also, you know, in addition to being about these heavy and serious topics, it's also a delight to write for me. It was really fun in many ways. And one of the joys of that was the joys of sort of bringing in these elements of magic mm. or surreality. Mm. Um, you know, I think the tiger functions in my mind as a sort of, you know, those really old maps where um, the cartographers would sort of like run out of known land and in the middle of the ocean they would just put that label it says here there be dragons <laughs> yeah 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 <laughs> yeah so to me the tigers are a little bit like my here there be dragons right yes. because my book as much as it is historical is also a reimagining it's sort of like a you know a new mythology yes. um and i the tigers function in that way and they were just really fun to put in there just like a lot of the sort of deviances of language were also really delightful to put in the book yes yes it really added a beautiful touch I guess to to how they they thought of the the landscape and the and the period um, so when writing my novel I was greatly preoccupied with representing what happened to the local Aboriginal people as respectfully mm -hmm. and accurately as possible mm -hmm. and I also wanted to show that the Chinese here were as complicit as the white people in sort of the deaths and the the displacement of the Aboriginal people um, I'm just going to read this beautiful piece again in your book, which I think really... And so Lucy fears that unwritten history, easier to dis dismiss all Barr's tales as tall ones, because believe, and where does that end? If she believes that tigers live, then does she believe that Indians are hunted and dying? If she believes in fish the size of men, does she believe in men who string up others like linefuls of catch? Easier to avoid that history, unwritten as it is, except in the sowing of dry grass, in the marks of lost trails, in the rumours from the mouths of bored men and mean girls, in the cracked patterns of buffalo bone. Easier by far to read the history that Teacher Lee teaches, those names and dates orderly as bricks stacked to build a civilization, Which kind of, again, reads into what we were saying before about sort of rewriting um so so what were your thoughts when you were writing about or representing the experiences of native americans yeah it was it i'm sure as you know from your own book it's such a it's such a fraught topic and it is so hard and it felt so hard to you know do it right for lack yes. of a better word and i think one of the sort of things i had to come to terms with as a writer in a way was that there was no way to do it in a way that felt faithful to the truth and that could make my characters, my, you know, my Asian American characters morally, come out morally clean, right? Like you said, right. there is a lot of complicity and there still is a lot of complicity because one of the sort of horrible twisted powers of, of imperialism and colonialism is how successfully, right, the dominant culture pits 
different yes. marginalized groups yes. against one another, right? Um, in the case of the United States, for example, you know, there is first the Chinese Exclusion Act. Um, and one thing that happened with the Chinese Exclusion Act is the United States said, right, like, no Chinese people are, are this play, we can't let them in. And they actually got buy-in from, for example, the first, um, you know, Indian immigrants from India mm. were considered Caucasian. Right. Because that was useful right. to say, you guys are yeah. Caucasians, you're with us, reject the Chinese, the Chinese immigrants. And then later, right, then they took that label away from the Indian immigrants again. And so there's always this pitting and turning of marginalized groups against one another. And so, um, you know, my, the main character in my novel, Lucy, is complicit in some of this because she's trying so desperately yes. to assimilate into yes. white culture. She adopts some of these toxic of views against Native Americans. But at the same time that I think this was true to sort of the book and the world, I wanted to make sure that it was obvious to the reader that this, um, this learned behavior was also as damaging in many ways to Lucy herself, of right? Course, it becomes this toxic self-hatred as well. Yes. Um, and it's it's just, it's such a shame because it's a situation in which no one from any marginalized group is really winning. No, no. But, um, and it's a very hard balance that sort of uh, serving the truth and your character um, and also you know, just what it was like then. You know, you can't be mm -hmm. totally, um, what's the word, prescient, you know, about um, mm. about what was happening. Like, like, you know, when they have characters that are, that are very, you know, feminist or, or mm -hmm. you know, against racism in those times, it's, 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 you know, because they want their character to be so, so good, it just doesn't, it doesn't work. Yeah. It reminds me of this like conversation that I've heard a lot um, in the last couple of years, the question of like, you know, if we were Germans living in Nazi Germany, would we be Nazis? Most likely, yes. Like everyone wants to think, no, of course not, right? Exactly. Because we know how horrible it is now, exactly. but there is that culture and there is that time. And I think it's, it's dark and fascinating and necessary to just really get into the grittiness of like how people, right, fall under the sway of these kinds of ideologies. Yes, and even just for survival a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. So I'm just gonna, I'm gonna revisit this. Um, your book's about the past, but what interests me is writing historical fiction, in writing historical fiction, is kind of exploring what has not changed sufficiently over time. Mm -hmm. um, was this, I know we've talked about race and gender, was this something you, one of your motivations in writing this book too was to show, yeah, 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 this, this was happening, but hey, have a look at now. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, for example, on the gender front, before I wrote this book, I was working for four years in the tech industry in San Francisco, very, very different kind of world from the one in the novel. But um, at the same time, all these observations I was making in the tech world about gender dynamics, about power dynamics, about money and the way money is discussed. You know, it's a, the tech world was, and I, it still is, you know, a very male dominated mm. place. Um, all of these thoughts and all these experiences and observations I was making in the world, they trickled into the book as well, because a lot of that hasn't changed. It's sort of like, it's the same water that flows through all these decades and all these generations is sort of just like, what is the shape of the vessel of it in mm. 2020 versus mm. in 1880? Yes, beautifully put. 
Oh, okay. So this is this is more about um, your process. When I'm writing a historical novel, I usually spend a year or two researching first, but I know a lot of writers do it the other way around. How, how did you tackle the research process for this book? Yeah, I love that question. I would love to oh, hear more about oh, your good. process as well. Oh, good. <laughs> Um, so for me, like I said, the the first idea of this novel really came from my subconscious. It came from from these images I woke up with in my head. And so because I had um, many years in the California public education system, I had learned sort of the foundational basics of, you know, Chinese immigrants in the gold rush there and sort of how the gold rush changed the social and political landscape. So I kind of had the beginnings. And therefore, for my first draft, I felt um, sort of free to just go ahead. And for me, I if I bring in research too, too early, it tends to some, sometimes stifle the yeah. way that my, my mind works into sort of like fictional imagined places. But then that said, in later drafts, I did go back and read, um, there's this wonderful book called Asian American Dreams by the activist and writer Helen Zia, which um, I turned to a lot, I read I went to visit this town in um, Northern California called Locke, L-O-C-K-E, which was the first town built by and for Chinese immigrants. Wow, um, wow. And so I, I did, go there. yeah, yeah, it's, it's really, it's really weird. It's a very weird place nowadays because I think the population is like a hundred people now, um, sidebar. Still, uh, still but Chinese? I guess all I'm saying, um, what? Still? Nowadays, no, no, no longer. Oh, okay. Yeah, but it's it's really it's really really fascinating. Yeah. Um, but what I'm trying to get at is, um, you know, and then I I lined up dates and I lined up I lined up sort of events, sort of like the real life um, completion of the transcontinental railroad. Oh wow. Made it into the book because it was this event where, um, you know, you mentioned this earlier about, yeah. but speaking of erasure. Chinese laborers built so much of the last parts of that railroad, but in this like famous picture mm. that they took of the completion of it, zero Chinese faces. Like Amazing. I actually zoomed in on the grainy photo to like try to look, it's all white faces, right? Oh gosh. Um, and so certain historical events, you know, sort of like echoed with um, and intensified some of the themes that were already in the book. And it was really important to do that research, but I guess I do it in stages. Yep, great. Yeah. Great. Well, it really worked. <laughs> um, did you find, <laughs> did you find in your research anything that you assumed but you were wrong and had to scramble a bit? Oh, that's a really fascinating question. <sighs> I think I don't know. All my questions, answers to that are going to be kind of depressing. I think again, it, you tended to be the case that I was like, oh no, I've done something like histrionic. <laughs> and invented something like you know too bloody or too big and then guess what actually there is like <laughs> slaughters like uh, yeah there are like you know I used to think that um the violence in the book was too much and then I went and oh. learned about these citywide massacres of Chinese yes. immigrants where like hundreds of white people would come burn down the houses oh, I don't think we can even everyone imagine. out into the hill. no yeah yeah it's amazing yeah um so did you find anything particularly surprising in your history? Or was it that sort think, of thing, just the sheer numbers it, and it, scope? Yeah, it tended to be that kind of thing, but I think probably the most sort of like 
delightful um, discovery was the discovery of that town we were talking about, Locke, where yes. it was it was built by and for Chinese immigrants, and um, they you know they built gambling halls, they built oh my places gosh. of entertainment. Gosh, uh, and it, I wish it I'd known about like this that. when I was I was in LA a couple of years ago. I would have gone oh. there to look for my book too. <laughs> oh my God! Well, maybe one day we'll meet one up. One day I in will. Locke. <laughs> um, going back to you know um, your writing of landscape is stunning in this book. It's mm. just beautiful. And I know Thank you've you. said you um, you had that long drive with your parents through sort of the that area and so some of the landscape you were familiar with. Did you need to uh, revisit the landscape in writing this or was it was it all there in that big brain of yours? Uh, good question. So for me, I, I was living again like out of the country at the time that I wrote the first draft of this book, but I was thinking so much about California in the West and whether I wanted to return there. It was just on my mind, which is I think why, you know, it's so deeply embedded in my subconscious. Um, and so I was able to write it from memory. And I think that writing it from memory actually strengthened the sort of pungency of the landscape in this book because mm -hmm. the way I wanted to render it was sort of less like a photograph, not photorealistic down to the last detail, but more of an impressionist painting. Like think yep. of like a Van Gogh where it's not actually in a way how the night sky looks, but it is how it feels, right? Wow, okay. Um, and that that's was a, what I was really steal interested that. in that's a That's a great way to look at it, thank you. <laughs> yeah. Um, now, I have read that this whole book came from a short story. Mm. Um, can you tell us about that? Like when and why? You, so you had the dream and then you just embarked on a short story. What were you hoping for with the short story and how did it grow? Yeah, so the short story was um, is actually pretty much the first chapter of the book as is. Wow. Um, I, I am really interested. I don't know if everyone, do you do this? I don't know if everyone does this, but I'm really interested in making sure that each chapter, even if it's a short one, has like its own arc. Oh, of course, um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so that was the f short story. I thought it was done, actually. It was the first <laughs> chapter. I thought it was done and I put it away. And then for many months, these characters, Sam and Lucy kept sort of pinging up and reappearing in my head. And I kept wondering about them. And finally, I succumbed to the idea that I had to write a novel, which I was i was not looking for a novel project at the time. As you know, writing a novel is like laborious and difficult. <laughs> but I can I totally understand that if you had that short story, you would have wanted to know more about these particular characters. They're fascinating characters. Mm -hmm. That's what I was saying earlier about how I love how it, the book unfurls, you know, that we, we mm -hmm. get to know them and they're not, they're not as as they seem at first. Yeah. Yes. I was on the first draft. I was definitely discovering what happened to them as as readers are. Right. Okay, well, I'm going to I'm going to stick with that too and skip close. I did have a Oh. This is for all the budding authors out there. I thought I'd ask you a couple of um, your process questions. So this is to do with it being a short story again. And then I read that you redrafted this novel a few times. Um, mm -hmm. Can you tell us how your novel looked in those incarnations? Like, how did you, how did you originally see it as a whole, and then how did it perhaps change for you? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, I had this conversation with the author Charles Yu this year, in which he gave me this amazing language where he calls his first draft actually the negative one draft. Um, 
and that's better language than the one I was using where I called my first draft the garbage draft. <laughs> but I guess what I'm trying to say is I think like in the first couple of iterations, it doesn't, your novel is going to be ugly and indeed it honestly should be ugly. You shouldn't get hung up on the sentences being pretty at that stage. Uh -huh. You just need to sort of get the thrust of it, get the like, the bigness of the emotions on the page and sort of like because you know in the first draft of a novel you don't actually know what you're writing about it's only when you get to the end and look over what you've created that you start sure. to tease it out mm. and then from there you're able to you know draw out the themes that you want more and more with mm -hmm. every draft mm -hmm. um so i would say in the first iteration it had the same beginning and ending it had the same sort of major points along the way right. but so much like probably fewer than 10 percent of the words in the final draft are are the same wow as they were in the in the first draft i i'm a person who can only revise by rewriting from page one it's, it's just how my brain wow. works unfortunately okay and that took a couple of years I think that working on the first draft of it took maybe a year and a bit. And then uh -huh. even with my agent and my editor, I probably went through another like 10, 10 drafts. Wow. I, I really, I really love editing and being edited, to be honest. Yes. Yes. It's very helpful. And, and yeah. you then were long listed for the book. Congratulations. So <laughs> it's you. a brilliant book. Um, and we talked earlier about this cult of productivity, which reminded me of another Australian writer I know. She was saying that the armrest of her couch, her, her sofa, would be full of ideas because she just lies there a lot, you know, in that ideation period. <laughs> would, you, um, yes. would you say that's a bit like your process? Hmm. Yeah, I would say that in, in a way, because I had this strange like multi-month gap between the short story and working on the novel, mm. it, in many ways, right, I was writing during those months yes. without actually putting words yes. to paper. I was ruminating on them. And I actually think that's a really powerful tool. And I try to remind myself of that as I work on the next project, like not to be so impatient because mm. a lot of the work you're doing where it's just kind of churning around in the back of your head, that's really, really valuable work, um, even if it isn't what looks outwardly yes. like writing, right? Yes, yes, and it is time consuming. Um, mm -hmm. And But I did read you you used to or, or do write a lot of short fiction. So um, is there any chance of a collection? Are you, are you thinking <laughs> of that sort of thing? Is it, is oh, it something you love to question. write short fiction? Because I know I was just talking with a short fiction, oh, well, a writer last night who loves writing short fiction, and my best friend's a short fiction writer, and they love the immediacy of it, mm -hmm. you know, as compared to this yeah, you know, the novel. I I love short fiction. I think particularly during the pandemic, I've been reading a lot of short fiction. And I think one of the things I love so much about it is there's something about the brevity of the form, which allows it to preserve more of the mystery. I think that sort of novels, yes. there's kind of this contract, right? You enter with the reader where the longer you go along, the more you sort of have to explain. Yeah. Um, and there needs the to be heart. a payoff. Yeah. yeah, there has to be, that's, yeah, that's a good way of saying There has to be a payoff where I feel like the expectations are different in a short story. And I really, really love that yes. about them. Um, I don't know. That said, I, <laughs> I've never been able to plan what I write and I right. miss writing short stories. They haven't really been coming to me, ah, um, but one okay. can only hope. Okay. Um, so I think I did read that you, you, you don't love talking about your next project. Um, do you want to tell us about that or maybe about what books you would recommend our readers here to read? 
or what you sure. might be reading. Okay. Yeah, I'm going to say I'm I'm one of the types who is a little bit superstitious about talking yes, about the next fair thing, enough. but I <laughs> I would love to give some reading recommendations and this just is stuff that I've been reading recently. I've been reading short um, novels. So I reread oh, yep. The Lover by They're Marguerite They're my favorite Durant. short novels. Oh my God, uh, so good. Yes. Um, I recently read The, Wide the Lover, is it? The Lover, yes, by Marguerite Duras. Oh, um, you can that. read it in like an hour and a half, right? Yes. Um, Wide Sargasso Sea by Jean uh, Rise, I think is her last name. So good. So so good, and um, on the on that note of short story collections, two that just came out in the U.S. that I think are really incredible. Um, Land of Big Numbers by Taiping Chen. Uh-huh. Uh, she was she. I don't know if she is still. She was this the Chinese course China correspondent for the Wall Street Journal for a okay. number of years, and so it's short fiction, but you can it just has that like real real pulse and texture of of life. Uh-huh. Um, and then this wonderful collection called Milk Blood Heat by Dantiel W. Moniz, which is mostly set in Florida and sort of about like very feral and and wild and lush in its beauty and its depiction of of women and of girls. Oh, thank you. I'm going to definitely yeah. read them. Um, now, I think we are at the point where we can ask questions from the audience, Pam. So here comes a lady. Oh, I wish I could see the audience right I know, now. I know, I know. I wish you were here, Pam. I really do. I oh. wish I could be wearing a beautiful dress in the sun like you are. <laughs> yes, go. Um, so, hi, Pam. As a proud mum of a non-binary teen, I'm always seeking books um, that present the diversity of gender. And for your character, Sam, his gender is an important part of the book, but it's, it's not a focus of the themes, but it, I think you beautifully wove his gender through the novel in a way that normalises his gender. And I, I'm just interested to know if that was how you first wrote Sam, or did this emerge as you redrafted your novel? Yeah, thank you for that question. Um, and it's, it's it's really wonderful as a parent that you, you support um, your child. I hope everyone is as lucky as as your child is. Um, so as I was saying, for Sam, Sam really emerged as a character already fully fleshed out, this presence, this sort of magnetic kinetic presence who just kind of like was gonna bulldoze through the world and take pleasure in whatever they wanted to take pleasure in. Um, and I think that was important to me even on future rewrites to preserve sort of like the normalcy and the confidence of Sam. In many ways, I think, you know, we have the two siblings, Lucy and Sam, and Lucy is much more sort of, quote, normalized in this world, but it's Sam who is actually confident in themselves and their identity. And I didn't want to write a character who is just sort of like cowed by the expectations of the world. Um, because the the other thing, you know, uh, we talk so much about history right now, earlier, and I think what's important to remember is Again, there are so many people whose lived experiences were erased from history. There have always been queer people. There have always been non-binary people. There have always been immigrants, right? Um, just because their stories were not the ones chosen to be in the history books written largely by and for straight white men for so many centuries doesn't mean they weren't there. They were just living their lives. And I really wanted Sam to be, to be present to show that kind of experience. Thank you. I think you did that really well. Thank you. Any more questions for Pam? 
No. Oh, here comes one. Here comes one. Hi. Thank you very much for your great talk. Um, I have a question about, I guess, um, being Chinese, being Chinese in America now. I've been recently working in China quite a bit over the last 20 years, and I can see how much things are changing in China. So the, the people who were teenagers uh, 20 years ago are different from the teenagers now because China's changed so rapidly. So I'm wondering about uh, presenting a Chineseness in your characters from such a long time ago. What did you think was important to bring out about the Chinese experience? Hmm. I think that for me, when specifically writing about this family of Chinese immigrants in America, it was really important for me to show one, the sort of like loneliness of being an immigrant, right? It isn't just the outright racism, but this, this feeling of, again, like, where do I belong? Where do I fit in? How do I uh, sort of form my sense of who I am when nobody in particularly, right, as the children are orphaned, as they're split up? Um, when nobody around me reflects that and that that constant quest for identity, that constant quest for a sense of a feeling that, you know, the waters of the world are warm for you. Um, that's something that I think is, is true to many, many Chinese immigrant experiences. And also, I think I wanted to show um, the sort of beauty and the marvel of being a, a, a pioneer and immigrant in this part of the world, right? There is such joy and such beauty that these characters take into the lands, in, in the land, in the physical landscape. And that is one of the ways in which some of the characters sort of like find their identity and their belonging um, and their sense of connection. Thank you. And that expression, the waters of the world are warm for you. That's beautiful. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, this was beautiful. Why do you only read American literature? <laughs> I don't only read American literature, uh, and I hope that we all read more works in translation. In fact, um, now that you say it, I want to say that one of the best books I read in 2020 was this fantastic novel called Hurricane Season um, mm -hmm. by this Mexican writer. It was shortlisted, oh, yes. I believe, for the International Man Booker. It's, so good and the language is so electric um, and then also I read this book called stories of the Sahara by this Taiwanese writer who went by the name of writing name of Sanmao um, and it was just recently translated in the UK and in the US but while she was alive I think it sold something like 15 million copies wow. in China and Taiwan and East Asia so wow. definitely not just reading American no. literature <laughs> Any other questions? No. No, I think that's it. So, um, also, I would I would encourage you to go buy this beautiful book. It's it's really worth it. It's gorgeous. I can't sign it for you, but um, you can go buy it over there in the book tent. Um, so please let's thank Pam Zhang for talking to us today about her gorgeous book. How much of these hills is gold? Thank you so much, Pam. Thank you for joining us.
Yeah, thank you for being such a wonderful conversation partner. And thank you everyone for coming out and seeing my enormous face projected onto <laughs> yes. this digital screen. Hopefully I'll, I'll be able to come to Australia in person one day in Cannot the future. Cannot wait. Cannot wait. Thank you very much, Pam. Thank you, everyone. I'm just going to remind you that when you are moving around the garden and especially as you are making your way from here to book signings, the book tent and the catering area, please maintain social distance, follow any directions from our COVID marshals. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>